At that time, there was no king in Israel. People did whatever they felt like they like doing. This is God's word. Thank you, Luke. Well done. All right, guys. If we could pray one last time, and then uh, and we'll get crackalack in here. Father, I thank you for um, everyone who is here today. I thank you for. Uh, just the, the kindness that you've given to us already, the mercy that you've shown us, and just the fact that you're gathering us here where we can sit and uh, think of you and we can reflect on you and we can uh, even think of the, the terrible suffering that you went through um, on our behalf so that you could bring us closer to you so that we could have relationship and so that we could be um, just just filled with your spirit and everything good there. So Lord, I just pray that you would uh, just bless us all with listening ears and with open hearts to receive a word from your spirit. I pray that I myself would decrease so that your word would uh, increase through me and, uh, and that this would be a word that would be of ultimately great comfort and not discouragement, even though we're talking about sin, which is pretty icky. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> Jared gets mad at me whenever I say, let's pray one last time, because he's like, you're going to pray again, I know it. And it's like, yeah, okay, I, I will, but, you know, it is what it is. Where's Jared? All right, sorry. I was going to glare at him, but I don't need to. Sorry, Jared. All right. <laughs> so, the topic we're going to be on tonight is sin. Like I already mentioned, this is going to be um, I, I actually hope that this is ultimately not an extraordinarily heavy sermon for everyone. I actually hope that there's a lot of hope and joy kind of added to the end of this because sin obviously does not get the last word as believers. But either way, we're going we're gonna to jump in. The book of Judges, which uh, the passage that Luke read was actually the final line in the book of Judges, Maybe the most uncomfortable book in the entire Bible. It is graphically violent. It's disturbing. It's unsettling. It's uneasy. There are constant wars and battles taking place. It features murder, war crimes, sexual assault, dismemberment, mutilation, racism, sexism, even Violence against animals, if those other things didn't prick your conscience. The people of God go through this constant cycle of leaving God behind, of forgetting about him, and then getting oppressed and mistreated by another bordering nation as a result. Then they cry out for help. God rescues them. They show God their appreciation and return to him. And then eventually they forget him again. And then a nation comes to oppress them. And that cycle just continues over and over and over with increasing stakes and increasing violence. The bummer about this book is that it follows right after this what could be like happily ever after ending for the people of Israel. See, we just talked about the story of God's people coming through the Red Sea, you know, the Moses and uh, Prince of Egypt, big climax of the people being able to escape from slavery. And at that point, God had promised his people that he was going to bring them to a land that would be theirs. It would be a land that they would be comfortable 
a land where they would be safe from oppressors and from violence, and a land where they could worship God and live peaceful, quiet lives. But God also expected them to follow him and to follow him in a good way. And when God brings them into this promised land, he tells them, listen, there's a lot of neighboring, there's a lot of neighboring uh, nations here, and they are walking in a very different path from the one that I'm setting you on. And so as a result, I, I really need you to drive out the people who are nearby. Because if you don't, you're going to get impacted and affected in a way that's going to really that's going to really mess things up. And just for a perfect example, many of these nations served gods who required child sacrifice as a part of worship. So it makes a lot of sense that God would be like, I, these, these may not be the best friends to make after school. It, it might be good to, uh, you know, listen, listen to your mother. And so the people of God finally have this beautiful land. They, they do not follow the instructions that God had given them. There is constantly this, this, like I said, this cycle of leaving God behind, of worshiping other gods, of committing these grand sins that these other gods are requiring, which does require human sacrifice. And the people of God are just constantly like in need of rescuing. And then they are rescued. And then as soon as they're rescued, it seems like they immediately forget the God who had just been there for them. And so the reason this book is called Judges is because throughout the book, God is raising up these individuals who are kind of serving as these military leaders to help, uh, you know, rescue and defend them from the oppressive nations around them. You'd think that because God's raising them up, that these are like superheroes, like God's just calling up like, you know, Iron Man and the Avengers. But in reality, these are people who are extre extremely flawed. Some of them are pretty, pretty solid. A lot of them are pretty bad. So in other words, the book of Judges contains many perfect examples of this idea that in Christianity we call sin. <clears throat> so before we get into the story, let's, let's try to get a good working definition for sin. Now, <clears throat> excuse me, to define sin in a productive way, we actually don't start with sin. We start with this idea called shalom, which is a, a Hebrew word for, does anybody know? Peace. Peace. Well done. It's very helpful. I forgot to write it down, so I'm really glad you guys had that locked down. Now, when we say that as Christians, we believe in sin what it means is that we believe that this God, this perfect, beautiful, loving God created our world with an idea of order that the, that the world should operate out of. And it's an order that would reflect the beautiful goodness that this God has. So he did not design this world to be full of diseases and robberies and all the types of horrible things we're going to read about in the book of Judges. He designed this world to have uh, loving and supportive families who 
reconcile their differences in meaningful ways, that they would have uh, uh, friends who, who love each other, even in, when times get really challenging, that, that, that humans would operate out of love and, and selflessness, that everybody would eat Korean barbecue and listen to Hank Williams, and that uh, the world will be full of good health and happiness and honesty and integrity and all these things. God had created our world ultimately for good, for beauty, because he's beautiful, and he wanted something to reflect that. Sin is what breaks that. Sin is what plays the uno reverse card on all of the things that we said. Rather than families that operate out of communication and love, we have families that are dysfunctional, that, that fight, that are separating, that are creating toxic and unhealthy environments for, for children. We have societies that are full of deceit and dishonesty. We have people who say that they love each other who don't. We have horrible things like substance abuse and, and drug dependencies that ruin families, that ruin communities, that ruin societies. We have all of these things, all of these toxic little things that have ruined and are continuing to ruin the world around us. When we look at the world with clear eyes and we think to ourselves, something is wrong here. And then we pull back the curtain. What we find there is sin. Now, a couple of theological points so I don't get any emails. Sin was not created by God. That should go without saying. God is beautiful, perfect, pure, holy. He cannot create something that is the absence of all of that. Sin was not part of the original creation. Sin affects our world. Sin affects our communities. As we all know, sin affects us personally and intimately. Sin affects our morals. Sin affects our interests. It affects our thoughts, our actions, everything about us. Sin is, in the name of a cool movie I saw last year, in everything, everywhere, and all at once. Imagine the idea that sin was affecting a musician. Now, sure, maybe it means that the musician uh, makes Nazi propaganda songs. Yes, that would be a sinful way for a musician to do music-y things. It could also be that it's a musician who feels so competitive about his craft that he's constantly putting down people who have inferior skills to him. That is another way that a good thing like music is distorted. Or maybe a musician who doesn't write music as much as they want to because they're afraid it's never going to amount to anything despite the fact that they possess a lot of natural talent. All of these in, in varying degrees are example of sin. It's a good thing unraveled. So with that in mind, let's take a few choice selections from the book of Judges, and let's talk about sin a little bit more. Here's my first point. Sin is complicated. Sin is complicated. Now, there's this passage in, in the first couple of chapters of Judges that basically says that the first generation of God's people that had heard the law, that had followed Moses, followed Joshua, followed these great leaders with integrity, that all of them had died. 
and their children were now the new people of Israel, and they didn't learn very much from their parents. They just kind of forgot a lot of stuff about God. And you think, you know, you, you look at this like through like a 21st century lens, and you think, okay, these, these people were raised in like the outskirts of society in this traveling nomad community raised by people who had experienced slavery and war and violence. You're like, these are some like wildly traumatized adults raising a bunch of equally traumatized children. And now they have no semblance for the faith that God planted in them. And so they go about kind of forgetting about God and following these other deities, but you think there's all these other crazy factors that are also impacting them. Sin is complicated. It's easy to say that sin is just the bad things that we do, but often the bad things that we do are, an, are, are, are a cause and effect of the bad things that have been done to us. And that makes it complicated. That makes it challenging. Believe it or not, the people who do bad things often don't wake up with bad things in mind saying, I will do this thing today. There's often a lot more that's at play. I want to introduce you to a friend of mine named Tom. Tom is not real, but he is in a sense. I'm going to tell you a little bit about him. Tom used to rob people. That's all you know so far. The history of Tom is that Tom, when he was raised by his family, he was abused by his father for a long time. His parents eventually split up. His mom raised Tom. Tom's mom raised him by himself. He went to a school where he was one of the only minorities in that school and was treated poorly as a result. Constantly subject to prejudice, name-calling from both teachers and students. Eventually, he got fed up. He dropped out as a young age and didn't get the education that he could have gotten. Eventually, as an adult, Tom got a job for a big corporation that laid him off because they saw him as expendable and not worth keeping. He took a salesman job thinking, you know, I'm going to keep making ends meet. Salesman job ended up being a big Ponzi scheme. He lost a lot of money, once again, trying to do the right thing. Tom got into a car accident that gave him chronic back pain. Tom went to his doctor, and his doctor prescribed a medication that he said, according to the pharmaceutical company, was not going to be addiction-forming. It was. Tom ended up unemployed with no money, addicted to painkillers. When Tom's prescription ran out, he started getting street drugs instead because his addiction was ruining his life. So how does he get money? Tom robs people. Now, here's my question. Where's the sin in this story? Is it that Tom robs people? It is. It is that Tom robs people. But it's also everywhere. It's everywhere in this story. This is why it's important to recognize sin as more than just the bad things that we do. The Bible says that sin is a part of human nature, and it is. 
But sin, according to the Bible, is also an oppressive, evil, demonic thing that is seeking to devour us. Sin as sin is something that has us both a perpetrator and a victim. Sin is something that attacks us, and it's something we use to attack. We define sin, as we mentioned earlier, as not as it should be. And we can see that all throughout this layer of Tom's fictional story that's not quite so fictional. Tom shouldn't have been abused by his father. He should have been loved and cared for by his father. The abuse shouldn't have happened, so his parents never should have split up. He never should have had to be raised by a single parent as much as I'm sure his mom did her best. His schoolmates and teachers shouldn't have treated him poorly with prejudice because of his skin color or his ethnicity or anything else about him. His first job should have valued him. His second job shouldn't have lied to him. He shouldn't have suffered the misfortune of a car accident. His doctor shouldn't have given him medication that was going to form an addiction in him. And yes, on top of all of those things, Tom also should not have robbed people. Sin rarely exists within a vacuum. There are other factors beyond our control that are forming and shaping us as human beings often making us vulnerable to these unhealthy, destructive ways of coping with the rough and sharp edges of life. It's easy to say like, well, John, shoot, like he sounds like he did the best he could with everything he had. Is, is Tom really guilty for robbing people? And to that, I have to say, even our American justice system wouldn't say that a good, that a bad, difficult life gives you a free pass to do things that you shouldn't. So I think biblically, yeah, you're still responsible for your actions, but we also have to take into consideration all of the things that led to that final point. A lot of things can explain and rationalize sin, but only one can justify it, and that's Christ. But we'll get to that later. But it's a brutal reality that we can't actually be justified, no matter what, without Christ. Here's my second point. Sin is often made of good intentions. This is one of my dad's favorite sayings back in the day. The road to hell is paved with good intentions. You guys heard that one? It's a good one. It's a bummer, though. Jeez. I love good intentions. I try to use them all the time. <laughs> I hope that's not where I'm going. Story in the, the book of Judges is that there's a man by the name of Jephthah. He's one of the judges that is uh, brought up to be, a, uh, to be a defender of Israel. Jephthah is a great military commander. But Jephthah, if we just talked about how the generation of Israel was very far removed from the teachings about God, Jephthah was even farther removed Jephthah wasn't just ignorant about how to worship God. Jephthah was actually very well-informed in how to worship pagan gods. So Jephthah has this great thought as he's leading the, the people of Israel through this brutal military campaign. He says, I know my gods really love transactions. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to say, God, 
I'm sure you're listening. Whoever walks through that door, I will sacrifice if you let me win this battle. And as you're reading this, you're just like, what is this guy thinking? Like people have, I I love commentators who will say, well, he thought that like a cow was going to walk in his door. No one ever thinks a cow is going to walk through their door. Farmers still have barns, but I digress. He was acting out of a complete, well-intended, but just complete lack of wisdom. And the tragedy of that story is that the person who did walk through that door after he won this tremendous battle that God graciously led him to victory in was his daughter. And so in this horrible, like embarrassing, uncomfortable conclusion of this story, God triumphantly brings his people to another victory. And for no reason at all, the man who he brought up sacrifices his daughter as a result. Good intentions, terrible results. And honestly, like, I mean, I I think that the easy way to respond to what I'm saying is, John, I've never had to sacrifice my child before, which I think that's great. I think if the opposite is true, we probably have to make a couple of phone calls. But what's what's honest is, I, I think each of us can look back and think, No, there were definitely times in my life where I had really good intentions. And even in spite of that, I ended up doing something that wasn't just not as good as I thought. It was actually pretty bad. Like I actually kind of did something really, really bad with good intentions. I thought as I was preparing this about um, this girl I used to see a few years before Annie and I got together, it was like, I don't know, there's this quote from Parks and Rec, this is a little bit of a digression, but uh, Aziz Ansari's character says something like, yeah, whenever you break up with a girl, you just say it's because the girl was crazy, like that's just what you do. And so me and my, you know, monkey brain, I just thought, yeah, so I had this relationship with a gal, didn't really go anywhere, and I just thought to myself, yeah, whatever, girl was crazy, you do what you can do, but what, what can you really do, Right. And, uh, and I just kind of carried this in the back of my mind, like, yeah, I don't think I really carried any responsibility there. I think, uh, you know, girl was just crazy. What are you going to do? Um, and I was telling the story to a group of friends. In fact, I think it was actually at Teen Bernacle a few years ago. So I'm just like, like nonchalantly telling this story to Danielle and like three of our teenage girls. And they're just like jaws drop open. And they're just like, this is this is what like happened. And I'm like, what? Like she was crazy. Like, come on. No, she wasn't crazy. I was a terrible partner. And I didn't realize that until someone else kind of gave me that perspective. But it, it's honestly, it's all over our experiences. Like sometimes we're just young and we make dumb mistakes. Sometimes we're just continuing to learn as people and we look back during a time when we hadn't learned certain lessons and we did things poorly. But the bummer of growing means that we have to start at level one. And level one often comes with a lot of mistakes. So sin is not just, you know, I grabbed the knife and I stabbed the guy. Like often it's trying to do the right thing and failing, sometimes failing spectacularly. Here's my next point. Sin 
is, sorry, sin does something for us. Sin does something for us. There's a story in this book about a guy by the name of Gideon. Now, Gideon was not the worst of the judges. He was also not the best. Gideon was kind of a chump. Like he was a little bit of a coward. When the angel of God came to Gideon and said, Gideon, I want you to lead the people of Israel and to fight for them and fight with them. Gideon is like terrified. He's like, I don't want to do this. This is a bad idea. I, I would like to pass. I would like to, you know, double it and give it to the next guy, right? Um, he's just completely out of it. But you know, he doesn't really get the chance to dismiss the calling. And eventually he agrees. So Gideon has this amazing victory where he actually has a full army to take on against the Midianites. And God actually intervenes and says, you know what? This army is too big. I'm actually going to make it smaller because if it's smaller, then people know that it wasn't the size of the army that won the battle. It was me. And so God gives Gideon all these instructions about like how to shrink the size of his army, ends up winning with 300 men, an astounding victory that only God could really pull off, an amazing, amazing triumph. Gideon, after his great triumph, returns home and thinks, who were some of those people that would not agree to fight with me? And he goes back and he kills them. And again, it's just like, oh my gosh, dude. Like, you just experienced this amazing thing. Why would he go back and kill them? Well, because, and this is my interpretation, because despite the fact that God had done amazing things in his life, Gideon was still deep down a coward. And Gideon was mad that there were people who would not support him during this time when he felt like he had need. And so to build himself up and to reclaim some of the confidence that he had lost, he decided, I'm going to take down some of these people to build myself up. Sin is always going to be something that gives us something that we feel that we need. Sin is often recognizing a wound that we have and covering it. And honestly, that's the most depressing thing that sin does is that it doesn't just find itself in our accidental, you know, slips and falls. Sin finds its way into our loves, into the things that we really value, into our affections. Like, I've mentioned this before, and I've also spoken with a good number of people about this. I've never met someone who struggled with something like pornography who wasn't also struggling with deep loneliness. It was something they were using to cover the wound. Like, I've never met someone who struggled with big explosive anger or defensiveness who wasn't also trying to cover up the wound of insecurity or low self-confidence. A lot of times these big sins, again, they do something for us. And it makes it challenging to just leave them behind because we think, well, what's gonna happen if I can't get that feeling that I struggle with, that I resent so much, if I couldn't get it covered? 
in a word, sin is evil. Sin is quite literally satanic. It's also extraordinarily broken. It feeds on broken people like all of us. And as if there was nothing else to say about sin, sin has two children, shame and apathy. You see, shame tends to get under your skin. It sort of starts to rewrite how you feel about yourself and how you see yourself, whether it's as a Christian or as a person or as a partner or as a friend. Shame starts to kind of rewrite all of that stuff starts to make lies feel like truth. It kind of starts to make you second guess if you're a worthy enough person. Apathy, on the other hand, apathy doesn't get under your skin. Apathy turns your skin into rock. Apathy says, well, if this is who I am, then, then this is who I am. But I'm not gonna feel guilty about this. And it makes you cold. Some people feel both, shame and apathy. And so sin distorts everything about our lives, all the peace and the harmony and the shalom we were made for. Sin is trying to just pick apart and devour until our life sometimes resembles the book of Judges, not in terms of violence and human sacrifice, hopefully, but in terms of confusion and disorder. That's what brings us back to this powerful passage that Luke read for us. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what they felt like doing. Sin affects our communities. Sin affects ourselves. And sin grieves the heart of God, who is our father and who loves us. When the Bible says that the wages of sin is death, I actually think it means something deeper than just the spiritual death or even physical death. I think that sin kind of turns us into the walking dead, experiencing this constant cycle of self-mutilation through shame or the distant removal of apathy, just an ongoing dehumanizing process. So what does our world say about sin? What's the good news when we walk out those doors and someone tells us how to deal with our sin? Well, number one, good news, you can fix it yourself. Do enough work, take enough time, all the things that really, that really mess you up, you can, you can resolve, just put your minds to it. Another thing that the world says is you better do it yourself, because if you step over enough lines and you cross enough barriers, you're, you're out. Like you can be dubbed just someone who is too toxic, too unhealthy, too unnecessary to have around, and your value as a person just decreases to zero, and no one has any obligation to be around you at that point. The world is not very kind to sinners. So what does our faith say about sin? Well, I think first and foremost, it says that the son of God became a man. What does our faith say about sin? Well, it, it read the passage that we went over tonight that 
In Israel, there was no king and everyone did what was right in their own eyes and, or everyone did what they wanted to do. And it said, these people need a king. These people need someone who will lead them. These people need someone who will help them. These people need someone who will heal them. And so the son of God became a man, became a person. Jesus entered into this world and he didn't observe, he didn't, he didn't take notes, but he experienced it. Jesus experienced a world that was cold and negligent towards those who are in need, the vulnerable in, this, in society. Jesus experienced the hypocrisy of the self-righteous and the overly religious. Jesus experienced abandonment from good friends. Jesus experienced loneliness in a world that didn't understand him and where he didn't feel like he belonged. Jesus felt out of place. Jesus longed for good companionship. And yet, beautifully, Jesus did all of these things, bore all of these burdens without sin. Not because he was a good guy, just some, you know, A-plus student prophet who just had all of his ducks in a row, but because he was the very God who created us all the way back in the beginning. And so Jesus stands over us now as a big brother who understands the pain of today, who understands the pain of, us, of living in a sinful world from the eyes of a sinful man or a sinful woman Jesus stands ready to forgive us of our sins and to save us from shame. Jesus stands ready to make us feel again, to chisel away all of that rocky apathy that makes us not care and allows us to feel and have a heart again. Jesus has promised to make right what has been wronged. Jesus is here to be present and loving, not just in the ways that we sin, but also in the ways that we've been sinned against. He's here to cover all of our wounds, not with band-aids that will fall off, but with real, meaningful healing. Jesus is, uh, is the king who has come for all of us who only do what's right in our own eyes. He's a good king, He's a king that's worth following. He's a king that the people of Israel, that the people of Judges dearly needed. And he's the king that we need today. Please pray with me. Lord, we thank you. Um, yeah, just it's just beautiful to think, God, that you know what we have gone through, that the deepest troubles that we've experienced, you, you know them well. You, uh, you recognize the feeling of loneliness. You recognize physical pain. You're not separate and removed from us. And so, Lord, we just need you. Like, we just need you to draw near to us. I love the quote from uh, Bernard that says, if God is good to those who look for him, how much better will he be to those who find him? Lord, I pray that you would let yourself be found today. I pray that you would let us experience the goodness that you have for us today. 
And I pray that you would ease this burden of carrying just this sinful creation that we're a part of. We believe in the new world. And uh, I pray that you would bring it soon. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.